Hi, everyone. Welcome to Better Together and As We Podcast. For future reference, ASWE stands for the Alzheimer's Society of Windsor and Essex County. This podcast will feature engaging conversations with guests ranging from community leaders to care partners and persons living with dementia to raise awareness about this disease. You're listening to Better Together and As We Podcast, and this is our seventh episode. My name is Cindy Keel, and I'm joined today by Dr. Jenny Wells. Dr. Jenny Wells is an internist, geriatrician, and associate professor in the Department of Medicine at Western University. Dr. Wells has served for several years on the London Middlesex Alzheimer's Society First Link Program Advisory Board. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Wells, for virtually being here with me today. Thank you, Cindy, for inviting me. It's always nice to help spread the news about dementia to the whole community. Yay. So today, Dr. Jenny Wells and I will be discussing the importance of an early diagnosis and the warning signs to look for. We will also dive deep into the process of a diagnosis, what to do when preparing for a doctor's visit, and what happens after a diagnosis. So before we start off, Dr. Jenny Wells, I would love for you to um, just give a little description of how um, you became involved with the Alzheimer's Society. Well, I think there's many reasons. Uh, one, they're community partners and helping to care for the caregivers uh, and the patients with dementia because there's so much other education that needs to happen with families when you have someone in your family who's diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or any dementia. And the Alzheimer's Society uh, isn't prejudiced. They'll help anyone with any sort of dementia, whether it's from Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia or frontal temporal dementia, they'll provide supports. So it's from a clinical need. The, the other aspect is in the Canadian consensus guideline for care for persons with dementia, it's one of the care guideline recommendations that the patient with their family be referred to the Alzheimer's Society for support. So in, in terms of, I think uh, one of the questions you mentioned just before we started is the name of this podcast, Better Together. That is one of the features is that it's recognized by medical experts that care is better together. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's professionally and is how I became involved with the Alzheimer's Society, basically. For my but, what did you essentially do while sitting on the board? Um, oh, in terms of that committee. So that was another example of to, uh, better together because then other community partners. So some were from the Lynn or when it was called CC, CCAC, Community Care Access Center there would be a representative from them. There would be a representative from uh, the Kiwanis Society because they have, will have senior community programs there. Uh, various retirement home leaders uh, sat on that committee. Then there's uh, the, visiting, the Victoria Order of Nurses runs a day program out in Strathroy. And so there was a representative from the uh, Strathroy who sat on that committee. Uh, in addition, they, the Alzheimer's Society will have had a, a care partner dyad um, of a patient with dementia and their care partner together. So it was a person, it was informed by a patient experience also in terms of their direct feedback on uh, various day programs. So then uh, the McCormick uh, 
day program that that is also was re represented in the group. So I'm trying to think who I'm missing from that organ from that network of people. Um, but you get the concept. It yes. was all the partners in the community that support people with dementia were there to talk about their resources, any updates. So we would go at the end of each uh, meeting, we met four times a year. Mm -hmm. And at the, at the end of each meeting, we would go round table to then what updates do you have in, in the program? And of course, I brought forth the, the academic as well as the St. Joseph's Hospital um, news from what we call specialized geriatric services is the program within the hospital where my office is located in terms of our um, resources for either rehabilitation, uh, day hospital, uh, mostly our aging brain and memory clinics. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that you are an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at uh, Western University. Um, what led you into this position and um, how long have you been in this position for? Well, I finished my specialty training in about the end of 1996. And there's a shortage of geriatricians and they, I guess they also thought I was smart and good enough. They asked me to stay. <laughs> so, so I was recruited and became assistant professor. Uh, that was my first appointment uh, in January of 97 uh, and joined Western as a geriatric, academic geriatrician. Um, so why did, I guess it starts, why did I become a geriatrician? Yes. Well, that sort of relates to some personal life experience. Um, when I was growing up, uh, my, well, my parents were older. Maybe I was a surprise baby, but it was older back then. It was, she, my mother was 37. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence of that, a lot of the other relatives were much older. So I remember being seven years old and going around to visit elderly relatives and they had various issues. Mm -hmm. um, there was one of my, my great aunts. Um, I remember being five years old and she came to visit. And at that time we were living in the United States and she was visiting. Uh, we were, I was, we were, the family was living in New Jersey. She was visiting from Connecticut and we went for a walk. And so my aunt Edna said, let's go home. And she took me the wrong way. And I said, Aunt Edna, home is this way. Mm -hmm. So that is grilled into my, and then I had to tell my mother what happened to Aunt Edna. And then it was a big family. And that was in 1965 or 66. So at that time, they didn't use the term Alzheimer's disease. And she was actually, and the, the condition got worse. So she was in a state mental hospital uh, by the time I was seven to get a diagnosis and they called it hardening of the arteries. And when I look back on her situation, she didn't have strokes or anything else. She was, and then I, over the years, I would go, we would go and visit her and I saw her deteriorate and deteriorate and go off her feet and not know anyone and not speak. And then she uh, died when I was 10. So that was a very um, kind of a monumental odyssey through my early childhood. And then in, in my 20s, um, my, grand, my mother's mother, my grandmother was actually very healthy, but she ended up dying of, of a stroke 
mm -hmm. uh, at about age 86. Um, so then I saw different experiences with seniors. And my mother was a registered nurse. So she was always the one who got called um, by other family members in, to ask about health issues. So it was sort of a natural kind of fit with the family. And I saw what she did and it was, you know, helping community, it fit with my personality, as well as I was very, uh, was pretty good in school and I like science. So I ended up amalgamating, uh, say, well, talking to people is what I enjoy. So for the emotional gratification and then mixing science in with the, with the science part with the best fit. So that's sort of why I went to medical school. And I went to medical school uh, thinking I would become a geriatrician because of that life experience. And I did some volunteer work. I, uh, I took time off between um, university and medical school to work as a chemist. And during that time, I volunteered at a long-term care facility just to test myself. And yep. So then I, and I got to save money so I could pay for medical school. So that was good. So that was, that was sort of the odyssey of how I was destined to become a geriatrician. <laughs> did, did you have um, siblings or were you the, the only child? Oh, I was, uh, so I'm the third of four. And so there's, uh, I have an older brother and sister who's eight and 10 years older than I am. Oh. And then I have a younger sister who's three and a half years younger. So there's sort of two groups. Yes. Of siblings. Yeah. Wow. And if I were to talk to your siblings, would they say the same thing that this just was your calling? I think so. <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's that's yeah. that's a really cool story. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna dive right into um why is an early diagnosis important? Um what's becoming increasingly more important uh, because on the horizon, hopefully, now I was gonna save this maybe for later, in terms of the drug that the, the FDA in the United States approved for use, um, that is a disease modifying drug. So I believe there's reasons and I don't agree with its approval, it's premature. We can talk more about that later, but an early diagnosis is important because the disease modifying treatments that will be on the market in the relatively near future, could be two years, three years, um, you wanna start those disease modifying medications as early as possible to prevent decline, to prevent loss of function. Um, the other reason is even without that medication, there are non-pharmacological or non-pill type of treatments that's important. So some people already have a lifestyle that's fairly healthy and that can prevent the disease from progressing or slow it down. And that is exercise. So, and it's been, studies have shown that when people who are already diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease exercise and the dose of exercise isn't that overwhelming. You're not gonna become a marathon runner you're going to become a power lifter. Walking half, an, walking half an hour a day is enough to change the trajectory and have slower decline when you have Alzheimer's disease. 
So, and I prescribe. And so starting that sort of, and then having a healthy diet because the Mediterranean diet has been shown in the five years that this particular trial was done, there was less Alzheimer's disease in the group who had the most adherence to the Mediterranean diet, less strokes and heart attacks. And if you're preventing a stroke, you're also preventing Alzheimer's disease because having a stroke is a risk factor to start the immune system in the brain that's stimulated by a trauma from triggering the cascade of chemical changes that trigger Alzheimer's disease. So to, to start, to shift your lifestyle to have, a, so the Mediterranean diet basically consists of olive oil, which is antioxidant, uh, an anti-inflammatory oil, um, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and fish. You can have other meats more as a condiment. So the saturated fats of, you know, a prime rib is not particularly as healthy as having a salad with olive oil and with some tuna on it. So, um, so that makes a difference in terms of just general health. Mm -hmm. So the sooner you start that or make that shift, the better. And, this, and we should all be prescribing exercise. Even childhood obesity has become increased in the last 20 or 30 years because we're all set in front of our screens like I am now sitting in a chair. Um, and so having a shift toward more and more exercise is in general for our entire culture is healthy for, for many reasons. So the earlier you start it, the better. Um, the other reason for uh, relatively early diagnosis is to prepare. Um, and get support and help and advice. So um, I think probably that will sum it up. Yeah, I think you covered yeah. most of it. And this is actually the second time um, for um, this podcast that um, someone brought up the Mediterranean diet, which is really cool to hear about. Um, uh, one of our clients is actually doing it right now and has said that he's seen a huge shift in his um, energy and his lifestyle. So that's pretty cool to hear about. Also, during COVID, I, I feel like um, during the first and second lockdown, since gyms were closed for most of, of Ontario, a lot of people were taking the initiative to get out and get go for walks and runs and finding ways to stay active, which was really cool to see because um, yes. prior to that, I hardly saw people, you know, taking walks or, you know, mm -hmm. doing things outside. So that was really cool to see and, and hear about. Um, so what are some certain steps to take in order to receive a diagnosis? So what does um, someone that um, thinks that they may have um, Alzheimer's disease or other dementias, what should they do um, in order to prepare themselves for the doctor's visit? Well, um, so there's a condition. And actually, when, we're, when I was talking about uh, the exercise and Mediterranean diet, so I'm going to go back and tangent reflect on the last question again and, and then go forward. Um, so there's a condition called mild cognitive impairment in which a person, they are testing abnormally. So they're mostly, it's usually recall. For the case of Alzheimer's disease, it's usually memory first. So they may not be testing normally, but their level of function in everyday life is maintained. Um, in studies also, I talked about exercise of walking. 
there's studies done with um, with women who are about 80 years old who had mild cognitive impairment, not dementia, and they did weight training. So they had a 10 minute warm up, which was a slight aerobic, and then they did light weights. Um, and they had better executive function. So in the walking studies, it's often memory that can be improved. But in the, this weight training particular, this study with mild cognitive impairment, it was what we call executive function. So executive function is abstract reasoning, sequencing task in the correct order to accomplish a goal. So it's actually a very important cognitive um, skill that we have. So that was also maintained. So in my prescription for everyone and start early because it takes time to adapt to new habits and lifestyle changes is two times a week um, weight training with light weights. And that's not only important for people who have memory challenges, but it's important as we age because our core muscles are our stability muscles that if we, you know, step on some uneven ground, lose our balance. It's our trunk muscles that help right us. So prevention of falls is very important. So um, if they don't like using light weights, then I will prescribe yoga or Tai Chi. And Tai Chi has been shown to say for people with Parkinson's disease to prevent falls. So, and it's also brain exercise because for both yoga and Tai Chi, you have to exercise your brain mm -hmm. to learn sequences. And I'll prescribe also from the very beginning, brain exercise to, and that this is the, the theme of Better Together, of socialization. So to learn and do new things, to keep your brain stimulated. Mm -hmm. uh, that goes through the whole course of the disease. So the earlier we start that, the better. So for a person who is, so there's normal memory lapses and this can happen particularly when we're under stress and stress hormones, namely cortisol is one of the stress hormones. It's probably the biggest culprit because with the stress of COVID I've put on extra weight <laughs> and cortisol can shrink some of the memory centers mm -hmm. in our brain that called the hippocampi. So luckily that would be hmm, temporary as we rebound and take care of ourselves. But stress management is very important. Um, so there's be a, a certain amount, if someone thinks they're forgetful, you have to look at the, your, your life, uh, what is going on in your life. Is it just this or is it that? Or gee, I just turned 60. Huh. Some, the, the peak of normal memory loss is around 60 to 62. And so there's going to be more times when someone at that age range may walk in a room and say, oh, why did I come in here? But that's normal for everyone, no matter what age. Other things that you might, we might notice in this transition, and we can call that subjective cognitive impairment, is the precursor to mild cognitive impairment. So SCI, or subjective cognitive impairment, is, oh, I think my memory's worse than it used to be. But you go to the doctor and you do the tests. Oh, well, you're bang on 30 out of 30 on all these tests. You're normal. Well, one, those screening tests may not reflect subtle changes. Um, but 
people who have that feeling, gee, I'm worse, that SCI, there's a good number of them, their brain is working harder. And then studies have shown that with mild cognitive impairment and, and uh, that we're maintaining our same function just because we have so much brain capacity, there's more and more work in our head being done to accomplish what we need to accomplish. So I think there's a subtle degree of anxiety that we can't pinpoint that people experience, oh yeah, hmm, something's slipping here. I'm not quite as sharp as I used to be. So those are very subtle. So when you have a, a disease that's slowly progressive over years and years, or even some people decades, it's really hard to know the difference day to day or even week to week. So you just say, huh. And then I use an example um, when I'm educating families in my clinic well, have you ever known someone who's gone, gone on a diet and you see them every day, you don't notice the change. But if you, see the, if you see a friend who's gone on a diet and you only see them every three or four months, oh my goodness, look at how much weight you've lost. So that phenomenon also happens with memory loss. So I'll have husbands and wives who live together after retirement and they see each other every day, they unconsciously compensate for the other one's lapses of, oh, not forgetting to shut the refrigerator door. They, you know, they got busy with the cooking thing and the pot went in the refrigerator instead of in the whatever. Different little mix-ups happen. And no, they're the same, they're the same. And then their children who live out West come and visit and they say, oh my goodness, what's happened to mom, dad? And they say, what do you mean? Mom's fine we're fine, we're doing fine. And then they, they will tell me stories of different lapses and things that have happened. So <clears throat> it's very hard to uh, know in the, in the first bit. So if the person feels that they might have a change in their memory and ability to do things, or they're feeling like it's harder, I think it's a good idea uh, to go to their family doctor and say, and especially if they know their family history and they say, oh yeah, my mother ha ha was fine, but she had three sisters who had all had Alzheimer's disease or my grandmother did. And my mother, you know, maybe died of a heart attack at age 70, but the family history is, oh, people are getting Alzheimer's disease at 75 in their family. Well, I think that would be even more of a red flag that it may run in their family because there is what we call a late onset gene if you have that gene, it's called the APOE4 gene, it doesn't mean you're going to, to absolutely have Alzheimer's disease in later years, but it does increase your risk. So be, if someone is having some telltale symptoms of uncertainty, go in and get some testing for a baseline. Then learn, what are the, what are the lifestyle things? So quitting smoking, for example, drinking too much alcohol, pickles the brain. You know, alcohol is toxic. So much either don't drink at all or significant moderation in alcohol intake, quitting smoking, the exercise, the two types that I've mentioned to have a healthier lifestyle, prevent strokes, heart attacks, and Alzheimer's disease. So that would be the benefit of going in early. Now, you also ask, uh, what should people expect if they're going to, so some family doctors, family doctors have a really hard job they have to be experts in everything. They, have to, they don't have to, like, they have to know how to deliver babies and they have to know how to take care of seniors. 
and everything in between. So some of the family doctors and, and the other is in their training over the years, it might depend on how long they've been in practice because nowadays the family medicine residents here at Western have mandatory rotations in geriatrics. That wasn't the case 15 years ago. And so some aren't uh, as comfortable in doing memory testing. And the other thing is if they have a really busy practice, it takes time. If they have a family health team that some of the testing can be done by an occupational therapist or their nurse, that can save them time. Um, so it's, I think it's highly variable what sort of family uh, doctor or the type of practice that family doctor has. So the family doctor might say, well, go to the Alzheimer's Society and get some testing done and then come back and we'll see what it shows and we'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. Or they might say, okay, well, we have, I have a team here, a social worker, and an occupational therapist, and um, why don't you see them? And then we'll come back and talk about the, the collective results done. Um, <clears throat> also in various communities, there is a program that's throughout the province of Ontario called the MINT Memory Clinic. Dr. Linda Lee started this program and there's uh, interdisciplinary, that's, that's the I in the MINT, a team and a family doctor who's had special training in the assessment of people who have memory complaints. And so there's a very a holistic uh, assessment that's done. And then the MINT specialist will confer with the patient and their family and do the and give them advice and some of those patients and every mint team is connected to a geriatric psychiatrist a geriatrician and a cognitive neurologist for advice if if so i'm often being uh, asked questions and help educate the mint team and there's booster days that i interact with that mint team so the experience of the first visit could it be a variety of options as and some doctors especially if you're going to live uh well in windsor there's two geriatricians uh dr burke and dr biswas at the geriatric assessment program in windsor mm -hmm. um i just retired from there i was driving down over the years it was four days per month two wow. yeah, two days and then two days and i gradually um was two days once a month and then I got down to and so finally I, I'm older now I'm looking at a retirement coming up so I, I resigned from there a, a year ago um, so there's different uh, expectations depending on what you're referred to and where you're referred to of what your experience will be like um, in terms of my clinics um, it's a specialty clinic if you're referred to our specialized geriatric services and the word memory is on it, I will likely be triaged to me or Dr. Michael Borey. Um, it could be memory if there's a whole lot of other medical conditions like diabetes and strokes and arthritis and lots of things like that. It may, it may be triaged to a general a geriatric clinic. The experience will be similar in terms of going to a specialty clinic. It will be a long first visit because we do a comprehensive geriatric assessment and uh, we're, that means we're required to spend at least 90 minutes with you yeah, and interview the person you choose to bring, bring with you. Um, so there'll be, in terms of my clinic, there'll be weight and blood pressures done 
a full physical exam, a full neurological exam, a look at all of your laboratory work, because there's the Canadian guidelines for care for people with dementia means that we have to check blood work to make sure there's not other conditions that can contribute to memory loss, like thyroid function, like diabetes out of control, and, 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 and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so then there'll be memory testing, and it usually will involve a mini mental state exam, um, a clock draw, what we call verbal fluency tests of how many words can you say in a minute. It's so it looks at how fast your brain can think and how your brain is functioning with language. Um, ruling out depression and anxiety is very important. So there's, there's other um, tools uh, to check on your mood. Um, asking about sleep is very important because sleep deprivation and making sure someone doesn't have obstructive sleep apnea, people who have obstructive sleep apnea often have thinking problems and memory lapses. So uh, it's very holistic and, and, and thorough. Um, usually will require imaging. So CAT scan or an MRI scan to be done before or after that visit. Mm -hmm. um, so does that help give a flavor? Oh yeah, that, that explains a lot just because I had no idea about the process and I'm sure a lot of other people don't know about it. Um, the first question that comes to my mind when you're explaining all of this is, um, how do you do the, this assessment or um, handle these visits with uh, clients that don't speak English or um, oh have a hard time with the language. Cause I'm just thinking about my grandma and my parents who um, speak little to no English. So how does right. that- uh, So I'm not sure of the policy of other hospitals, mm -hmm. but for my, and whether it's even legislated, but they're entitled to, and the hospital should pay for it. And sometimes we'll call them and ask a preference. And if the patient agrees, oh no, my daughter, I'm, I'm fine with my daughter translating for me. Well, then it's patient-centered care. So they can, but we will have a professional translator come to the appointment. Mm -hmm. And with COVID, they've been, it's a little bit harder for some patients, particularly with cognitive impairment, to have the translator on the phone. Yeah. It's, it's um, more, you know, human responsiveness to have the translator in the room in the clinic. But that's the practice we have, that I have in my my clinic. Well, that's that's really good to know just yeah. because, um, yeah, my sister and I are the main caregivers for our parents and my grandma. So um, already it's difficult trying to explain uh, to them in medical terms um, in, yes. our, in our language, right? So. Yeah, so family doctors wouldn't have that luxury mm -hmm. because I work in, an, in a hospital setting with operational leadership and they will have budgets for that. Um, so that means a you know, family doctor, you could request the family doctor to refer you to a center that has that capability. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you spoke about earlier um, stress management. What are a few pointers um, for stress management? Any <laughs> advice or, or things that people can do to to help with their stress? Um, well, I'll tell, so I'll go maybe in two directions. Some of it will be advice of what I tell families. So they say, oh, we wanna go on a vacation. We wanna fly here or fly there. Can we bring uh, my 
Bill, or my husband, Bill, how do you think he's going to cope? And I'll tell them, take your time. If you're going to plan your flights and you have a connecting flight, make sure there's enough, you know, don't book a flight that has just one hour in between the transfer because you can't rush someone with dementia. If you try to rush anyone, it creates a panic and they don't function as well. So take your time. If you're gonna be driving, although being in a strange place can be disorienting, mm -hmm. it's better to take your time, pay the rather than drive through and push, take the time, stay overnight in a little motel, have a good meal, be hydrated, and then carry on. Um, so yes, so cortisol, the stress hormones can shrink our memory centers. And I, I remember I went to my Windsor clinic and I was juggling my coffee cup, my bags, and I don't know why I had my wallet out, but I had to put my coffee and I put my wallet on top of the, my, the, my roof of my car because I was more concerned about having that coffee in the morning. <laughs> My coffee was safe inside the car, but my wallet was on top. Yeah, so then I drove away. And so somebody, and then I was like, got to my, got to the clinic. I saw my patients and at the end of the day. Well, where's my wallet? Some trucker had found it in the parking lot and turned it into a nearby business. Of course, he helped himself to the reward of cash inside, but that was fine. Yes. <laughs> but that's an example of what stress can do. Things yeah. get discombobulated and you'll, you won't pay attention to what you're doing. Okay, my keys went here. Where did I put my keys? Ah, that can be a sign of stress. Or is it a sign of, gee, I've misplaced my keys. Is it, is it oh, early stage Alzheimer's? Mm -hmm. hmm. So you take good care of your mind, breathing exercises. So I will, and, I, and in my line of work, I've had to try to manage my own stress. <laughs> and so I've taken yoga courses and we'll do yoga breathing because engaging the diaphragm with it. And I, and I sing in a choir that also is really regenerative. Of course, my choir hasn't been meeting for two years because of COVID. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I miss it. But um, you have to take time out to do other things to stop, stop engaging your brain in worry. So breathing slowly, engaging that diaphragm helps slow the heart rate down and it changes some of the brain and body chemicals to engage your nervous system in a different way than always the fight or flight stress mode. Um, so exercise is also part of that routine whether it's going for a walk, clearing your head, engaging in, in nature. Um, so I, will, I have regular exercise, I'm a cyclist. Um, well, there's sometimes I only get 150 kilometers in a week. Uh, usually I'm trying to get 200, 250, well, I can get 200, 250 and certainly when I'm on vacation. So, I, and I just came home from a ride, a, the Bruce Peninsula Gravel Fondo. Wow. Up north. That was why I had yesterday off as a vacation day because we went uh, and uh, camped up in uh, Lion's Head and had a beautiful bike ride up on the uh, Bruce Peninsula shore. It was muddy and misty and foggy, but we didn't get poured on. So that was good. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, exercise, engagement in family 
activities is also a stress reliever, depending on the family. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to work on your relationships and decide uh, if there's someone who has negative energy, maybe you want to see less of that family member. <laughs> I'm going to avoid Uncle Bill at the family reunion this year. I don't know. I'm kind of being a little facetious. Um, no, so st- stress management and all work and no play is, uh, yeah, what is it? it? There's an expression, all work and no play makes Johnny a dull boy or Jenny a dull girl or something, but you have to take breaks. Yeah, yeah. That's why they say sometimes you need a vacation from your vacation. <laughs> <laughs> the right amount of stress actually is helpful. Well, you just got to manage it. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Wells, for taking the time out of your already busy schedule to do this podcast with me. I would love for us to finish this podcast with some fire rapid questions. These five questions are random and will allow our audience to get to know a little more about you. Can you answer these questions with one word or one sentence? Um, and there are no wrong answers. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> It's hard for me to just say one word. If you've noticed, I just kept going and going. Question number one. If you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with the extra time? Oh, I'd take take up guitar, guitar playing again. Nice. Yep. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Mucho burrito. Shrimp. Ooh. What would your perfect Sunday look like? bike ride for the whole day yes nice (laughs) what could you give a 40 minute presentation on with absolutely no preparation besides what you do (laughs) besides alzheimer's disease what else could you give a 40 minute presentation on um i've done this uh the sewing and thread history in new england Oh, that's pretty interesting. All right. And last question. What's the best piece of advice someone has ever given you? Take a break. Perfect. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Jenny Wells. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. I hope our listeners have gained a better understanding about the importance of an early diagnosis and what the process entails. Hey, listeners, my call to action for all of you. How can you help? Educate yourself and encourage others to do the same. Refer your circle of friends and family to our services. Support our events and fundraising campaigns. Become a dementia-friendly community and keep talking about dementia. Listen to new episodes on the last Friday of every month on our YouTube channel, Alzheimer Windsor. Don't forget to subscribe. Hope for today, hope for tomorrow, and remember, we are better together. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Wells.